Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, episode 45, the one about hybrid working, memorable customer experiences, and the silence of the lambs. Let's get on with the show. Well, hello and welcome to another recording of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. We are back with more news, tech content, and wisdom from the world of marketing. Joining me, a man on a mission to keep marketing simple, the voice of the Marketing and Finance Podcast, and the author of Cats, Mats, and Marketing Plans. I give you Monsieur Roger Edwards. Oh, thank you so much, and welcome, everybody. And of course, my co-host is also a man on a mission, this time to demystify digital marketing. He's the host of the Content Marketing Studio video podcast. Please welcome Mr. Pascal Fintoni. Thank you very much, Roger Edwards. This is episode 45. 45, five away from the big five oh. I know. Can I also spend a moment to thank all our well-wishers who we we got some lovely messages on LinkedIn, some retweets on Twitter. Uh, it's appreciated. You know, as I've said before, we do enjoy producing this show with our colleague Tim Orton, videographer extraordinaire. But it is good to know that there is an audience out there that is also enjoying some of the segments. It feels great, Roger. I mean, we are approaching summer. We can, you can tell from the very light conditions, we are much brighter than usual. Uh, I'm happy because my hay fever has not started, but also because we have Hollywood, you know, kind of uh, celebrities in the north of England, not far from you. So we know that Harrison Ford is currently filming Indiana Jones 5 in Bamburgh Castle. And in Annie Castle, not far from here, they are also starting the filming Dungeons and Dragons. It's really quite exceptional, isn't it? Wow. I actually saw a photograph somebody tweeted this morning. They'd spotted Harrison Ford at the quayside in Newcastle, just wandering along past the uh, shops and restaurants. So how cool is that? I mean, what would you do if you bumped into him literally at the quayside? If he was you know, on, the, um, on your favourite spot when you go and have a coffee on the Saturday morning, would you go and talk and ask for a selfie? Oh, I don't know. I think if, if I bumped into him by accident, I'd probably be tongue-tied or I'd probably <laughs> say something really embarrassing like, hey, how's it going, Han, or or, or something like that, or, or call him Junior or so. I, I don't know. But uh, if I actually saw him across the street, I probably definitely wouldn't have the nerve to go up and say hello. I'm sure he'd be lovely if you did. But clearly, from what we've seen on, on, on the internet, I've just realised this must be some kind of record where we've started uh, the introduction by talking about films. We normally <laughs> wait a bit longer for you know for this, but uh, once again, thank you very much, viewers and listeners, for humouring us. But you know, this is a style of the Two Geeks and the Marketing Podcast. However, let's begin with In the News. Facebook is allegedly working on the design of a smartwatch, which will include a heart rate monitor and two cameras, a front-facing lens for video calls and a detachable rear 1080p camera. Well, HBO Max is promoting its reboot of Gossip Girl using text messaging. Fans of the show can text or call to gain access to exclusive content and voice messages from the series' main character. Pinterest introduced two new features, Shopping List, which lets users save their product pins to receive price drop notifications, and The Goods by Pinterest with exclusive access on selected products. Vimeo, the online video hosting and publishing platform, is now listed as a public company, an exciting new chapter for the 850 team members and its CEO, Anjali Sood. 
Virgin Media and O2 have joined forces in a £31 billion tie-up and the newly formed company is called, wait for it, Virgin Media O2. The merger is said to challenge the dominance of BT, which bought rival EE in 2015. Well, according to LinkedIn, the labour market for UK graduates is finally improving. Its new Get Hired report shows that technology and digital-based roles are the fastest growing jobs and communication and problem-solving skills are also in high demand. Heinz has launched a light-hearted rewards campaign for Canadians stuck in traffic. If you drive at the same speed as its slow-pouring kettle ketchup box bottles, which is 0.045 kilometres an hour, you get a free meal at Burger King. Well, and finally, Sesame Street is making bedtime easier with a new podcast by the Headspace entitled Goodnight World, hosting by Alan, the owners of Hooper's store alongside characters such as Big Bird, Oscar and Abby. Oh, I love Sesame Street. Oh, absolutely <laughs> adored it. What a eclectic set of news, um, Roger. But can I begin yes. straight away with the merger of Virgin Media and O2? Now, yeah. This this is a big thing. Uh, I've been an O2 customer forever. So that ever since I've had a phone, I think I've been an O2 customer. And I want to start this segment with a bit of a rant, a gentle one, but a rant nonetheless, uh, Roger. I received an email announcing the merger. And I mean, you and I have been in work in marketing for some time. We have viewers and listeners who are in marketing, have been working in marketing for some time. Of all the things that they could do in terms of communication efforts, I don't think sending me a link to the privacy policy to read it again was really what I was uh, hoping for from two companies such as Virgin Media and O2. And to date, this has been the extent of their marketing efforts. I mean, they are notoriously for bad customer service, aren't they? O2, I, I don't use O2, but I, I've heard loads of people moaning about their customer service. And even Virgin, who you always think are the epitome of good service do get a bad press in this area. So actually merging the two brands together and calling them effectively the two brands at the same time is both unoriginal, but also draws attention to the fact that they're merging these two brands together, which don't have particularly good reputations for customer service. So so yeah, they've got a bit of a work bit of work to do to uh, you know to up their game. I think. It's just um, an anomaly, uh, and I think you know whatever they try to do in the near future will be too little, too late. So tell me why, as a you know long term O2 customer, I should get excited about Virgin Media? Because to your point, I've heard primarily negative things about Virgin Media, perhaps unfairly. Maybe there are millions of happy customers, and only a fraction are unhappy. But I've chose to go with O2 and not Virgin Media for all those reasons. So now I'm left thinking, well. Is an advantage? Is it just simply that you know they want to take on the might of BT? But it was just this idea of you know silence is not a good thing when you have such a uh, significant event happening. And more importantly, if all you can come up with is to send me a link to your privacy policy so that I can read it again with whatever changes you've made because of the merger, I think you're missing out uh, on you know communicating well with your current customers. Yeah, let's face it, we don't wake up in the morning thinking, do you know, today I'm going to read Virgin Media O2's privacy policy. It's going to be so exciting. 
I wanted to then quickly ask your reaction about Pinterest. Now, Pinterest is a fascinating platform, you'll agree, Roger. That is to say, they've never made the headlines for the wrong reasons, unlike many others out there, such as Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and so on. Pinterest feels like a good place to be. But then I'm torn about those new features, you know, are they losing their core kind of offering? Are they losing their raison d'etre if it becomes essentially the place to go to be told when there is discounted products? Yeah, it's, it's a strange move, isn't it? Although I, I can understand what they're doing. And, and, and I guess Pinterest is a very product orientated platform, isn't it? Even though it's generally about pictures, um, that you pin and you could argue well that's the same as Instagram isn't it I've always felt that Pinterest does have that sort of product orientation so you know people p uh, post lots of pictures of cakes and knitting patterns and and recipes and, and this that and the other um, but yeah you're absolutely right Pinterest has always been one of those social media platforms that I often forget about until an alert pops up on my phone or I read something like this in the news about it it, it is quite innocuous um, and maybe we shouldn't slate them for trying something a little bit new like this because what I will say is whether I like the idea or not at least it's different and they just haven't gone and copied stories or or reels or 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 snapchat they've actually come up with something which you could argue is unique to Pinterest itself and interestingly, last year, Pinterest was almost voted in, uh, informally by users as the best social network when it comes to well-being and simply being amongst lovely people who have really positive outlook on life as opposed to what is happening out there. And in fact, they had a conference, I think late last year, if not early this year, Roger, memories failing, in and around well-being and the role of social networking and everything that comes with it. So you're right, there is a very, very strong user base for, for Pinterest. You and I operate more in B2B typically, so we don't always think of it. But I just think it's a nice that once again, it's always well thought of by both users and you could argue practitioners in terms of marketing and sales, and they're doing things very, very differently. Talking of doing things differently, Heinz and HBO Max, so speaking with Heinz, here's a brand that is so, so clever with its marketing campaign. It always makes me smile. It always feels very, very witty. And what they've done here, which is uh, something that I've heard um, a lot about in the past in terms of advice, but I could never find a good example, this idea of lean on your faults. So we know, I don't know about you, but I would always favor a squeezy bottle of ketchup than the official glass bottle because it's such a pain to get the ketchup out of a glass bottle. But they're leaning on that fault to create a campaign, frankly, that is making the headlines all over the US. Yeah, it's very, very clever. Um, I have an admission to make, Pascal. I don't like Heinz ketchup. I don't like it. And, you know, I I, I once knew, a, knew a, a friend of mine who used to put Heinz ketchup on everything. Mm. Like, he used to put it on his breakfast, which is probably okay. But if he had a curry, he would put ketchup on his curry. If he had roast beef and Yorkshire puddings, he would put ketchup on that as well. And I'm just thinking, for the love of God, don't do that, please. It's just horrible stuff. But yeah, I mean, it, it is an iconic brand and, and that whole idea of how long it takes to 
gently squeeze itself out of the glass bottle it can be excruciating so i would always if i did like it pascal i would be in your camp and i would go for the squeezy bottle and make sure it just went straight out onto the plate so here's the um, oddest survey from two gifts martin podcast in the comments below let us know are you the squeezy bottle type of person or the glass bottle type of person i just love the idea that they had heinz uh, engineers actually uh, tracking and measuring the time it takes for you know the ketchup to come out of the bottle but wonderful way to get word of mouth marketing and on that then hbo max i mean obviously this is a u.s brand but the idea of using text messaging now when you read the full story roger the reason why the um, chief marketing officer went for that is because they found that digital only was getting tired and they're very crowded and they wanted to appeal to the audience that actually were also very fond of text messaging because of that generation, but also they wanted to make the PR headlines and they got what they wanted. No, it's again, it's it's a good use of technology and it's interactive. And I think people love the interaction, don't they? And And that feeling that if you do something, you're getting something that somebody else hasn't got, that exclusive content. And for me, messages. yeah, and for me, Roger, someone that is a digital marketing consultant and trainer, that just made me stop on my tracks thinking, yes, you know, it's not always about digital and there's going to be other ways to communicate. And here's, here's a fine example. Very finally, before we move on to the next segment, Roger, are you a smartwatch owner and user? No, I'm not. Um, my <laughs> wife has one, um, and it's an Apple Watch, and obviously it's very clever. I've just, uh, I've just never seen the point in them, to be perfectly honest. Um, I, I, I go in and out of love with watches. I've got quite a few watches, and I'll go through stints of wearing them all the time, and then not wearing them. But I've never really fancied uh, the, the Apple Watch. Interestingly enough, one of the articles I nearly picked today for Content Spotlights was an in-depth look at this potential Facebook Watch. And we know that Facebook are, are not exactly covering themselves in glory over their data policy and how they handle privacy and all of that sort of thing. Uh, and from what I can gather, there's going to be a few things that people might be worried about if this watch actually does come to the market. So that'll be interesting to see what Facebook do to counteract any criticism they may have there. Yeah, and the reaction from uh, you know the, the interweb has been being perplexed about what would you want to have detachable camera? I have cameras on my phone. It was just kind of a very, very confused message out there. But of course, they, they are just allegedly working on the design, Roger. So we'll have Which to probably wait means to... it's about to launch next week. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Right, well, thanks very much for going through those news swiftly with me. But let's slow things down and move on to the next segment, the content spotlights. Okay, Roger, I know you've been online, you've been subjecting yourself to the algorithmics, you've been down the YouTube rabbit hole. What wonders have you found in the interweb for us today? Well, Pascal, I'm going to talk about customer experience this week. And funnily enough, we've already um, talked about the subject back in the news section when we were talking about the new the the customer experience offered by Virgin and O2 and you and I have had this conversation on the podcast quite a bit over the last 45 episodes now the majority of the episodes of the um, 
Two Geeks in the Marketing podcast have been recorded during lockdown. And you've said this, and I've said this, that quite a lot of companies seem to be continually using the pandemic as an excuse for really poor customer service and customer experience. You know, it's so due to the pandemic, we can't answer the phone. Due to the pandemic, we can't uh, get back to you for a week. Due to the pandemic, you know what it is. And you're just sitting, come on, this is an excuse, isn't it? And I came across this article. Um, it's in the Inc. magazine website, and it's written by Martin Zwilling. And the headline is, Eight Steps to Delivering a Consistently Memorable Customer Experience. And I guess what he really means there is memorable from the point of view of it being remarkable and being something that you want to talk about positively, as opposed to what you and I did just before, which was pretty much talk negatively about the customer experience with Virgin and O2. And what Martin's saying in this article is that, you know, with marketing, we continue to be obsessed with the digital communications tactics. And again, that's something we've said on the show lots of times. But he's saying even marketers that get the wider marketing mix, the product, the price, the location, and uh, and the and the promotion, as well as the strategy, even they often miss the importance of customer experience and customer service. Uh, and, and of course, some people have included an, an extra P or a C within the marketing mix to denote customer service. So it caught my attention. That was the first reason it caught my attention for the the headline. But then when I started to look at the eight uh, of the uh, steps, number two really caught my attention because it reminded me of an experience that I'd had. So what I'm not going to do today is go through all eight of these um, steps. I might just tell you quickly what they are, but I'm not going to go into them in, in, in any sort of detail. But the one I want to focus in on is number two, which is providing training tools and required decision authority for the staff in your business, whatever that business might be, who are delivering the customer experience. Now, Martin uses the luxury hotel chain Ritz-Carlton to talk about this and basically what he's saying is that the Ritz-Carlton hotel train their employees extremely well but every single employee within the Ritz-Carlton chain whether that employee is a bar person whether they're a cleaner whether they're um, a cook whether they're a reception uh, operative each of them is authorized to spend $2,000 per guest without having to clear it with a manager to solve a guest issue to make sure that that guest has a great experience. Now, just think about that for a moment. $2,000, every single employee could spend that money. Um, and you think about how many you think you might phone up Virgin Media and they've given you some bad service. And you might say to, well, I think you should compensate me £20 for the inconvenience. You can guarantee that when you're on the phone to Virgin Media, that person that you're on the phone to, well, I'll have to go and check it with my supervisor. And then they'll go and check it with the supervisor and the supervisor will come back and say, well, my authority is only £10 a month. and that, So that's that's all you can have. But it's that level of trust 
that Ritz-Carlton has in their employees to allow them to spend that $2,000 per guest, I can actually guarantee that it rarely actually happens because they'll know intuitively because of their training when to do it and when not to. Whereas a lot of businesses like Virgin and others might say, you must be ridiculously, you must be joking to suggest that we would give our staff two grand to spend on every employee because they would, they would, be, they would have that mindset, wouldn't they? If we give the staff that ability, they'll all be off spending £2,000 five six seven ten times a day and they'll bankrupt us within seconds and that's the trust element isn't it ritz carlton trusts its employees to do this and it trains them impeccably in the delivery and i would guarantee that it doesn't happen that often but when it does happen the amount of positive feedback they get from that particular guest from having that problem fixed will absolutely make it a worthwhile investment and i've been to the ritz carlton hotel chain on holiday several times but i was also very lucky back in it was about 2005 i was actually taken behind the scenes of the ritz carlton operation it was it was part of a trip i was on to the states to actually see this training in place and they really do take it seriously, Pascal, and this whole idea of giving them that pre-approval. I don't have to check it with anybody. So a cleaner could be in a room and, I don't know, they've, they've accidentally dropped a, some, they've stained a, a coat or something like that. That cleaner could say, fine, we'll get it dry clean for you and we'll pay for it wouldn't have to run it past anybody they would just get it done and that's great customer service so martin really just reinforced to me that as marketers maybe one of the things that we've forgotten is customer experience and just to finish this off i'll just read you the the, the eight things and hopefully that will encourage you to read the article in full and the link will be in the notes so number one is hire team members who enjoy customer interaction seems obvious but you know some people might not get that number two is the one i've already talked about give them the decision ability to pay for things that need to be fixed number three incent incentivize and reward employees who delight customers number four make sure all people have an opportunity to meet customers at, of all levels you know again don't hide the cleaners in the background and the chefs in the kitchen. Let them be out there meeting people. Number five, communicate and be a role model for customer focus. Number six, build customer relationships to supplement surveys. Number seven, under-promise and over-deliver on all customer requests. And number eight, sponsor experiments to create memorable elements. So really, really interesting article. Not a massive read. You, you know, it's a, it's a two, three minute read, but there's lots of really good nuggets in there. So highly recommended. Well, thank you very much. I love all eight points, in particular, number four. Would you mind reading it again for me, please? Yeah, of course. Number four was make sure all have the opportunity to meet the customers. Now, how many companies you and I have worked for or have been consulting for that do not apply this rule? Absolutely right. And, and again, you can guarantee that a lot of those people, poor old Virgin Media are getting a slagging on this, this episode, but you can guarantee that even though those people will be on the phone, they're not actually 
out there at all ever actually meeting people and we all know the pandemic aside face to face an actual proper interaction is a great way to connect with the customer and two things i've got a flashback from many many years ago when i began my kind of running my business and i was invited to talk to a uh, actually financial company of all which is no longer with us for reasons that are going to become clear to you in a moment so i was asked to really help with the marketing and it was the early days of blogging seo and that kind of things and we had a conversation about coming up with content ideas and I discovered that the marketing department never, ever spoke to customers and never, yeah. ever listened to any conversations. And the reaction from the directors, well, no, then marketing, the others talk to customers. Mm. As, and I said, well, how on earth are you going to come up with um, you know, the FAQs, everything else that you'll need to supplement your, your, your marketing activities? Needless to say, I didn't end up working with them or for them, but uh, that just shocked me that the marketing department was in this kind of glass bubble it was literally glass panels that was a department and they had to come up with content ideas without talking to anybody and then the other thing that i liked about this article the reminder that being trained in customer service is not being trained to do the job well it's to be trained to have at your disposal a range of options when things don't go so well because that, that is life and you and i know that many companies really build wonderful reputations and loyalty by solving problems not just absolutely getting it right, right first time absolutely right no i agree with both of those things it, it's not just about being good at your job it's having the common sense and the intuition to make the right decision for the customer and and again just to agree with what you said there you know you know that my definition of marketing that i include within the within my book is marketing is a obsessive understanding of the customer how can you have an obsessive understanding of a customer if you never meet them no, absolutely. It is a mindset. It's an attitude when you work in marketing, for sure. So what have you got this week in your content spotlight, Pascal? Well, interestingly for me, what I've got is an article that mm -hmm. arrived in my inbox at the right time. I just, oddly, have been having many conversations with my customers around hybrid events and hybrid working. And I'm not sure that the term is great or being adopted the right way. And in those conversations, Roger, that I've been having, I sense that the position is that the hybrid, which is to say this idea of combining face-to-face -face and virtual, is a lesser alternative to just face-to-face. -face. And the danger is that people may be missing out on the fact that a hybrid may be a wonderful evolution of creating a better experience for employees, for leaders, and of course, for customers. Now, this article is written by Zori Amar, the founder and owner of Zori Amar Digital, and it was written for a website called digitalleaders.com. Now, digitalleaders.com is almost now a, a movement, an initiative across academia, public sector, and private sector, where practitioners, thought leaders, and the likes get together to share articles, interview each other, do a podcast. They have annual conferences and so on. And they're looking at ways for digital and tech to make a positive impact in both social and professional lives. And they talk about 5G, Roger. They talk mm -hmm. about AI. 
tech for good skills and talent which is the kind of the, the the stream that I follow and the article that Zoe wrote is entitled how to make the right decisions about hybrid working and I want to use this article to then you know have a quick conversation about hybrid events and what our customers mm. should be thinking about now what Zoe is doing, and she seems to have also a specialism in the charity sector and third sector. So she's recounting recent conversation, which is always lovely, that she's had and using that to invite all of us to really prepare for decision. Her position is that hybrid working and hybrid events are here to stay. And don't make the mistake to think that it's a poorer alternative and, and option than the face-to-face -face only or the virtual only. So she has a, um, a segment in the article called Use Hybrid to Raise Your Game, which I think is a perfect way to summarize the intent there. And she's giving an account of a conversation she had with the um, manager or director of the Youth Hostel Association, who has found that the hybrid working has allowed them to recruit better talent from across the um, the UK as opposed to just locally, but also provide better customer service. So this idea of, well, we can't wait to go back to normal and drop the virtual and digital would be a big, big mistake, which I'm sure you'll agree with. Mm. Then she talks about this conversation she had with the director of um, MS Trust, whereby you've got to find a way to include your staff in the deliberation and decision making to come up with your version of what a hybrid working and hybrid event might look like. And they give some examples of how they went about gathering the, um, the feedback and the opinions of the staff because the risk that you run Roger in big organization is that people will tell you what they think you want to hear or they'll say well I go in the office because I think that's what the boss would like me to do so what they do they organize walk and talk meetings which I've not done for a while I must confess but this idea of literally you go for a walk in, in fresh air and you talk it through they organize, which I think would be lovely to attend, a garden pub parties and meetups to get. And they also had online kind of discussion boards and so people could contribute. This idea of gathering all that kind of um, feedback to make sure that when you make a decision as a team leader, it is one that people have obviously been included in and participated. And finally, in a segment called Test, Learn and Improve, she gives an account of a conversation with the CEO of the fund, funding network who had to shift all their fundraising event online. And they discovered that attendance was 71% higher online and that more importantly, donation and fundraising was increased by 67% at events that historically were done only face-to-face -face or in the physical sense. So they're planning to obviously stick to their hybrid event, but they are very, very carefully making sure that neither the face-to-face -face nor the online version feel like the poorer relation. And that to me is what we'd like to get a reaction on, but also I think the conversation we need to be having with our customers. You and I have been invited to speak at virtual conferences. I hear from my customers, they just can't wait to go back to normal. But actually, isn't hybrid the new way forward? Yeah, now I've actually, I'm in this situation myself <laughs> with the big conference that I do the marketing for uh, every year, Protection Review Conference, because that's going to be in December. And whilst we had to run it entirely as a virtual event last year, we're hoping that it will be an in-person event this year. Now, 
the the fact is is that working with that conference and we've done loads of mini conferences over the course of the year has shown us that when you hold an event in a venue like a hotel or a conference center you have a finite number of seats you know whether it's 300 or 3000 once you get to that limit that's the end of it you can't squeeze anybody else in but when you do it virtually, of course, you, you, you can have as many people as you want there. And one of the things that we found was that in general, because that conference was limited to about 350 seats, we tended to attract the managers, the senior managers from financial services into the room. But quite a lot of the more junior staff or younger staff never got to attend the conference because they weren't senior enough in inverted commas. But the virtual version opened that up to a wider audience. And so our thought process is now, it has to be a hybrid event in order to keep that extra audience that we've built during the lockdown. But then you start talking yourself out of it to a certain extent, because during lockdown, there's also people who've become a bit reticent of traveling and people who may decide well you know i don't want to travel to london anymore or i don't want to travel to manchester anymore and if you give them the virtual alternative they may decide not to go to the physical event but not you know that that's not necessarily a bad thing but it is a bad thing if they say they're going to go to the physical event but then in the back of their head they can always say do you know what even if i wake up on the morning I can decide to watch it online, and that means there'll be an empty space in the physical event. So I agree that virtual hybrids are the way forward, but I think you've still got quite a lot of things to balance, and I don't yet know what that right, that absolute balance actually is. Oh, you're absolutely right, and that's why you know we must thank again Zori Omar and the conversations she's had with her clients, because they're saying this will take many conversations and the decision would be reached in multiple ways. And I suppose I use this article to illustrate the point that it's not as clear cut as can't wait to go back to normal and drop the virtual, but it's not as clear cut as well, let's continue. You know, I think you have to really, really reflect on that. I mean, using your, you know, at the moment favorite four Ps, how do you price it between someone yeah. who attends physically and virtually and, and, and so on and so forth. So yeah. It's it's interesting. It's very very timely, and and for me, the, I'm doing a lot of research on behalf of my customers around the tech. So, what would it take, for example, to film somebody on on stage so they can be watched online, and again for online not to be the poorer relation to the physical, and and vice versa? How can you maybe invite a um, a speaker to be streamed to the big screen whilst you are in the room? and make sure that that doesn't feel a lesser presentation to someone physically on stage. It's going to be absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Super. Well, it's been a very enjoyable conversation on Content Spotlights, but let's see if we can surprise each other and amuse our listeners with the marketing tech and apps. Now, this is one of my favorite segments because every single week, I must confess, Roger, you surprised me, both in terms of what you were looking for, but also what you found. So what have you got for us this week to make life easier as a marketer? Well, actually, some of the things I'm going to talk about this week are actually things that I've talked about before, uh, but there's 
hopefully a slightly different angle that I want to take this uh, this this week. So hope you'll hopefully you'll forgive me for coming up with um, something I've talked about before. As you know, I subscribe to Adobe Creative Cloud, which is a suite of of products which include Photoshop and it includes Adobe Audition, which we do the audio version of this podcast on, and I get Adobe Premiere Pro as well, which I use for my Rog Vlog videos and sometimes I use Adobe After Effects as well to create a few special effects to go on those videos but but there's hundreds of other things within the adobe creative cloud as well you know from raw photography to desktop publishing to just about anything you can think of and you pay monthly you pay a monthly fee and every year you renew um, on the uh, 12th month anniversary now one of the things that i find is that the, the the average cost of the entire package is about 45 quid um you could subscribe just to adobe premiere pro and it's it's more like 16.99 or something like that but for the full package it's 45 quid now that's not massive amount of money in the scheme of things for getting your hands on so many incredibly good mm-hmm. tools but sometimes you know i tend to use Premiere Pro and Audition mainly, and I sometimes think, is this actually too much money to spend on all of these things? But what I've found is that every year on the renewal, if you actually go onto the Adobe Creative Cloud renewal part of the website, you can actually play a game with them, which I don't know what they they obviously know that this is happening, so it's part of the way that it works, but. I've always found this works to my advantage, is that you end up trying to cancel your subscription. And it will say, if you cancel the subscription, you'll no longer have access to all of these great programs and you'll uh, all the stuff that you've got stored in the cloud will be deleted. Is that really what you want? And you click yes, and then the next screen it comes up and says, almost like, are you absolutely and utterly sure? <laughs> and and this is the point where you start getting a bit scared and say, if I click yes, then they'll cancel it and it'll all disappear. But somebody once told me about four or five years ago that don't be scared, just click that extra button. So you do click that extra button, and their third attempt to get you to stay is usually some form of offer. And this has worked for me pretty much every year, except for the first year, obviously, that I end up getting some sort of discount. So this time, this this year, on this renewal, I played the same game, so clicked three times. And when I thought they were about to throw me out, they offered me a reduction from £45 a month to £25 a month. And I've got that for the the following year. So now, you know, I'm thinking, well, actually, even if I do use Premiere Pro and Audition mainly, you know, the single cost of a single uh, thing is about 16 quid. So actually, I'm pretty much quids in getting the whole package for the, the cost of two. So if you are subscribed to Adobe Creative Cloud and you have that same doubt as I do as to whether you are getting the value for money out of it, just try that little click at the end and see whether you get an offer now 
I'm pretty sure that because we don't have millions and millions and millions of listeners to the Two Geeks in a Marketing podcast, that Adobe are suddenly going to wake up to this and change it all because of what I've just told you. I think our audience is perhaps not big enough yet to make such a mighty dint in the Adobe empire. So definitely worth trying that out. Well, to be honest with you, Roger, I had this image of the men in black from Adobe kidnapping you and (laughs) me being left without a co-host for weeks on end, you know? That's right. And they'll flashy thing me, so I've forgotten the uh, the, the fact that uh, I can do this discount. So, so the second things that I really wanted to talk about is that, and, and I often forget this because in my head, Adobe is mainly the, the things that you have on your desktop. And, and in fairness, a lot of their programs, you know, there are so many options, buttons and, and trickeries that you need the big screen to play around with it. And video editing, you probably really need the big screen. But what I do forget is that Adobe have loads of apps as well for my, for mobile phones, some of which are just really, really useful. And I came across this article which reminded me of three uh, which are called Adobe Spark, but there are three versions. There's Adobe Spark Page, which is all about desktop publishing, and you might create graphics with it, or you could create a um, an infographic, something like that. So it's mainly word-based and, and, and shapes. The second one is called Adobe Spark Post, which is where you might manipulate a photograph to add text to it, or manipulate a short video to add text to it. And then finally, Adobe Spark Video, which is mainly aimed at creating stories for things like um, Instagram stories or Twitter stories or, or LinkedIn stories. And these are powerful apps. And because you've paid your 25 quid or your 45, depending upon whether you got the discount, you automatically get all of these in your package. So you could be downloading all of these things onto your phone at the same time. I think you can get a, a phone version of Photoshop There's definitely not a phone version of Adobe Premiere Pro, but some of them, some of the bigger suites do have mobile apps. So if you are using Adobe Creative Cloud, try to get that discount. And don't forget about all the great things like Adobe Spark that you can get access to on your phone. Wow, I'm absolutely delighted for you, I must confess. That (laughs) that is something else, both in terms of, I think, to get a fair fee, uh, you know, because I think when the use level is intermittent, it is on the high side, I would say, but uh, mm-hmm. good on mm-hmm. you. And of course, rem- remembering about the mobile app. I mean, I've heard many people praising Spark. So yeah, mm-hmm. well done. Cool. So Pascal, what have you got? So for me, interestingly, this is all to do with the conversation we had last week. You remember in the content spotlight, you were mentioning um, your son writing an essay yeah. and how the, the writing style was really different to what would be expected of him in the workplace. And I must confess, it stayed with me, this idea of the skill set of young people. And then mm-hmm. we, a moment ago, we read in the news about um, LinkedIn and the Get Hired report. But also this week, I had a conversation with the local university with their employability officer. And we were talking about the skill set and the needs of small business owners in and around content marketing, reputation management, and so on and so forth. And they agreed that you know the university courses would only, can only go so far and that they are looking for have what they call visiting lecturers, like people like you and I, to just give the young people an insight into the real world. 
And that got me thinking about a few years ago, I was invited to talk at a um, Durham University to their postgraduates, people who were on their way to looking for their first job. And to keep it short, really, I kind of shocked them into you know making sure they had their own blog where they would just give a summary of what they've been learning, what was interesting to them, that they had to get their LinkedIn profile just right, and so on and so forth. But the other thing that I said to them is, you want to understand what would be required of you, and you've got to be seen to have taken the initiative by educating yourself beyond the courses available to you. So this is where these two platforms come in, Roger, to supplement your CV, your LinkedIn profile, your blog, but also at the first interview to really impress your future employers with you taking the initiative by simply going online and taking time to self-study using online courses. Mm. That supplements, obviously, the, the skill set that is required of you. So there's many options out there, but the two that I've chosen are in and around this idea of first impressions and creating impact during the interview. So you have Coursera.org, course and then RA, Coursera.org. They've got free courses. You also have paying courses and the fees are very, very low from international recognized universities and brands. So if you want to say that you went on a course on the subject of interest to your employer from Stanford University, Yale, if you are studying, for example, management in the creative, the art of fashion, Universita Bocani from Milan, Erasmus University from Rotterdam, Google, IBM, they're all there with free to very low fee courses. That's worth a few hours of your time a week to do a course, complete the course, and have at least theory, if not practical knowledge of what will be required of you by your employer. The second option is more of a UK-centric option called futurelearn.com. Again, free or very low-fee courses from leading universities, including Glasgow and Edinburgh, Roger. But if you want to learn more about business management, if you want to get into the creative arts and media, politics, IT and computer science and language, I would definitely look into futurelearn.com. There are courses delivered using, of course, video, audio, and, and downloads by lecturers, professors, and more that really can supplement your profile and build your career and take the initiative, which is really the advice I've given to young people for some years now. This is all good stuff. And I've looked at a few things like this before, Pascal, but you know, as you would expect, there's so much stuff out there and some of it has a good reputation. Some of it has just been cobbled together. Mm. Some of it is backed by universities like this. And, and it is, it's a little bit like you just don't know where to start. So it's really good that you've done this and actually zoomed in on a couple of real high quality sets of courses and i can't wait to actually dive in and have a look and see if there's anything in there that grabs my attention or, or indeed to your point i mean my focus is around young people and employability mm. but that's for everybody so let's reverse engineer that you know the kind of jobs you want to apply for go yeah. online look at the job descriptions look at the skills or the experience find the course on coursera and future learn and at least you're not going into the interview on the back foot Absolutely right. No, it's all good stuff. And, we, and, I've, and, you know, I'm always saying this, have been saying this, we're always learning. You know, you and I have been doing marketing for decades, but we do learn things new every day. And there's nothing to be ashamed of at self-developing like this. Absolutely. Now, Roger, 
None of this would be possible without the work of pioneers and visionaries from the recent and distant past. Let's move on to This Week in History. In 1215, the Magna Carta is signed by King John, declaring the sovereign to be the subject of the rule of law and documenting the liberties held by free men. Wow, well in 1878, the world's first moving pictures are caught on camera by Edward Muybridge, who used 12 cameras, each taking one picture to see if all four of the horse's hooves left the ground. I really like that. In 1910, the first Father's Day is celebrating in Spokane in Washington. This holiday is generally attributed to Sonora Smart Dodd, whose father, a Civil War veteran, raised her and five siblings after their mother died in childbirth. Wow, I didn't know that. Well, in 1942, Ferdinand Porsche starts working on the first prototypes of the People's Car, also known as the Volkswagen Beetle. The final original Type 1 VW Beetle, Listen to this, Roger. 21,529,464 rolled off the production line at Puebla, Mexico on the 30th of July 2003. Goodness gracious. In 1963, Soviet cosmonaut Valentina Tereshkova became the first woman to travel in space aboard the spacecraft Vostok 6, which completed 48 orbits in 71 hours. And in 1975, Jaws, based on the book by Peter Benchley and directed by Steven Spielberg, is released. It won several awards for its music and editing and is regarded as a watershed moment in motion picture history. In 1976, the Viking 1 spacecraft reaches the planet Mars 10 months after being launched from Earth. One month later, Viking 1 would become the first US spacecraft to successfully soft land and perform a mission on Mars. In 1991, Robin Hood, Princess of Thieves, starring Kevin Costner, Elizabeth Monstrantino, Morgan Freeman and the late Aaron Rickman, is released in the US and becomes the second highest grossing movie of the year. Wow. I can't believe that that's 30 years ago. <laughs> 30 years ago. Let's do this chronologically. Oh, thanks, by the way, for a reminder about the Magna Carta for the next pub quiz or Richard Osman's <laughs> House of Games. 1878, sorry, Edward Muirbridge using 12 cameras to essentially create a moving film, moving pictures, to prove that when the horse is galloping, the four hooves are lifting the ground because to the human eye you can tell now what is interesting is i've seen many of his work because there's also a gymnast you know when they're jumping and they're, they're all known and and around the web but he himself i don't think is that well known and i think that's a crime yeah i've never heard of the guy before um which is why this piece of news is so joyous um and you know and i can't believe it was so early as well i mean 1878 but he was using these 12 the, the, you know the thought process of actually setting the cameras yeah. up presumably in a string in a line in order to to get, compensate for the movement of the horse as well but to the genius in it is i'm trying to prove whether a horse actually <laughs> Is, is flying at a, at a certain point, I guess. Mm. What is interesting, and that you can impress, impress friends and family with, a couple of years later, he did the test with 24 cameras, ah. which led us to the 24 four frames per second. Ah, I didn't know that either. Mm. So is that is that where 24 frames a second comes from? It will be, because yeah. 24 images and then showing the movement in a much clearer way 
and yeah. we've kind of stuck with it for for quite some time. So yeah, I was really pleased to have discovered this and was completely perplexed as a bit of a movie nerd myself to either forgotten or completely missed the history and the contribution of Edward Mubridge. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, let, I l- love to celebrate people that we've never heard of, but uh, at least now we know. <laughs> now, have you ever had the pleasure of owning or driving a VW Beetle car? Well, I've never owned one, but yes, I have driven one. And it's a great, iconic car, mm. isn't it? It, it? it seems to me that pretty much every country and every car manufacturer has the sort of workhorse car that, rolled off the production line in its millions so obviously the volkswagen beetle um the french one i might get this wrong is it a dus chevaux or chevaux, like yeah that? two cv which was never near two as classy CV. and good looking this <laughs> but having said that you know they rolled those off the production line in the millions and in britain of course we have the the original mini so <laughs> but the, the volkswagen i think out of all three of those examples probably has well some people might argue that the mini does but the Volkswagen Beetle does have that elegance of shape and the curves, doesn't it? It's a, it's so iconic. But this this is a bit bit of a off off the wall thing, Pascal. But uh, this week I uh, I was sat out in the garden and I noticed a ladybird sat on one of our paving stones. So I got my iPhone out and I got up close and took a photograph of the ladybird and I published the photograph on Facebook. You did and and said. Uh, here's this lovely ladybird. And I always feel that ladybirds are lucky and I feel lucky seeing this ladybird. And one of my friends from America posted a reply on the post to say, do you call these things ladybirds? We call them ladybugs here in, in the States. And that triggered another memory from seeing this. They don't call Volkswagen beetles beetles in America. They call them Volkswagen bugs. So there oh, must right. be some sort of beetle bug thing going on because a ladybird is a beetle, isn't it? So ladybirds become ladybugs and Volkswagen beetles become Volkswagen bugs. But the car itself, you're right in terms of its design, in terms of the curves, the, the colours and so on, is so iconic. It's it's a marketing story success, if there is one. Featured in movies, of course, we yeah. know that. But when I used to go to the movies, there used to be a, an advert you know, before the, the main feature for Nescafe. Mm. It was a, a group of young men and women, very attractive, I will say, with surfboard kind of jammed into the car, driving the Vidaru Beetle to the beach, jumping in the water and having a wonderful yes. time. And I was thinking, I, I want this. I want the Beetle and the girls and the surfboards in that order, probably. Um, but it was so iconic. And who would have thought, because tr- truly to your point, it was meant to be dirt cheap, very reliable, very robust. You could really take little care of it and keep running. Absolutely right. And I think, I'm, sure, I'm sure there was another advert as well. I think it was a coffee advert where a girl who'd obviously been dumped or had had a bereavement or something was driving along and she parks on the yep. edge of a cliff and you think, oh, no, she's going to do something awful. But actually, she just gets a, a flask out and pours herself a coffee and she sits in the doorway of a Volkswagen Beetle or it could have been a De Chaveau, perhaps, I can't remember. And and the song comes over, I can see clearly, clearly now the rain is going to yeah. Uh, So, yeah. 
<laughs> is this the first time we've sang on this podcast? Probably, absolutely and, and right. It should be and, the last as well. I was going to say we will never, do, <laughs> never do it again, Pascal. <laughs> so I will resist temptation to go on about Joe's being myself a self-appointed mm. Joe's historian and nerd, but seventy-five yes. Roger a year later, yeah. which blew my mind because, of course, we saw the news recently of the Mars rover, nineteen seventy-six. I just can't even understand that we had the technology to to send and have a um, you know a, a spaceship going into spacecraft should i say going into mars no i, I wouldn't have said that either yeah, I, I, again the time flies so fast these days that the, some of these things that i thought were only 10 15 years ago are actually more like 30 or 40 it, it genuinely is quite frightening finally i'm guessing that you have seen robin hood princes of thieves Yes, this indeed. was mentioned as the second highest grossing movie of the year. Uh, actually, it was the first one for a while, then it got taken over by Terminator 2. Mm -hmm. Until a few years ago, I didn't know this, but uh, my mind was blown, Roger. Robin Hood, Princess of Thieves, there is a director's cut. Have you seen it before? I think we may have done it. It's obviously longer, um, although it's such a long time since I watched either the original version or the the extended version, I, I couldn't tell you what the difference was. But again, it's a, one of those iconic movies which will probably have to be in our film marketing section at some point. Alan Rickman is mm. incredible as the Sheriff of Nottingham. Some of his one-liners are, this was he all eat, eat your eyes out with a spoon or something. Yeah. Uh, absolutely incredible. He's so, so good. He was such a good actor. But of course, the other incredible thing about this film is that the song everything i do i do for you by brian adams still holds the record to this day of the longest period of time at number one in the uk singles charts which i think is 17 weeks maybe 16 Talking or 17 this. weeks and it's never been beaten and you know so not only have you got an, an incredibly iconic movie but you've also still got one of the most best-selling singles of all time yeah i mean the, the movie i would watch uh happily now i'm actually would favor the longer version because mm -hmm. we discover more backstory for the sheriff of nottingham mm. uh and for me i I mean, it's, it's lovely. You discover things at all times. I think I only became aware of the longer version two, three years ago. Mm -hmm. um, what I will say when it comes to the song, I'd be happy not to hear it ever again. <laughs> uh, but you know, sorry, Brian. But you know, the uh, you know that's all sleep part part of the the, uh, the fact that she's been played so much on radio <laughs> and everywhere else, including sporting events and awards and that kind of things. Absolutely, yeah. He's got some better songs as old Brian. <laughs> I have to say, probably stick stick with them. Um, Summer of 69 and uh, somebody and that sort of thing. <laughs> this has been wonderful, Roger. You know, to again, reminisce and talk about our kind of teenage years and, and more. But let's go back into the present with the creator shoutouts. Let's do it. Now, in this segment, Roger and I celebrate the work of content creators out there. So who is in the spotlight for you today, Roger? Okay, this week I'm giving a shout-out for a gentleman called Steve Bonthrone. Now, sometimes, you, you, because we're marketers, Pascal, we talk about marketing all the time, you sort of have that, when we're shouting people out, it's got to be some sort of marketing-orientated content. But of course, that's not the case. We're wanting to encourage people to create content for whatever industry it is that they work in. Now, I met Steve 
many years ago when he was part of the CMA Live community. Steve is a fitness instructor. Now, as you know, I do a bit of fitness instructing and yoga teaching on the side as well. But Steve specializes in helping the over 40s get fitter and and start setting fitness goals for themselves. And he embraced content marketing quite early and frequently puts out videos mainly on Instagram, sometimes on um, other platforms, maybe like LinkedIn and Facebook, mainly Instagram. And they're only quite short segments, maybe only about a minute, 90 seconds. But they're always very good, very precise and very helpful. And again, focused in on that niche of the over 40s. And I, I just came across him again today on LinkedIn and thought, you know, I really need to give this guy a shout out because his stuff is so good. And the other thing that he does, mainly on Instagram, uh, is that he, he tends to go out for a run every morning, sometimes scarily early, I have to add, you know, when I'm probably <laughs> still in bed. And he takes some of the most phenomenal photographs of the area around where he lives and where he runs, which is up in in Perthshire, um, over the Fourth Bridge and, 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 and towards the Highlands. And honestly, some of those photographs are absolutely stunning, especially the early morning ones with the mist and and sometimes some castles and bridges and that sort of thing. So if you are over 40 and you are looking for some fitness tips specifically tailored towards you, check out Steve Bonthrone and also some of those amazing photographs. Thank you very much. It's lovely to have something a bit different today, Roger. Mm. Now, do you enjoy, when it is obviously appropriate, do you enjoy using PowerPoint, Microsoft PowerPoint? <laughs> I, uh, I have a love-hate relationship with PowerPoint. Long, long time ago, I used to be the king of PowerPoint, and I would do a presentation with 100 <laughs> slides. Now, I tend to use PowerPoint sparingly, so I'll and, and mainly using photographs and maybe one or two words. But yeah, PowerPoint is part of the speaker's content kit, isn't it? Um, ammunition bag. Uh, so yeah, I, I use PowerPoint. I'm a big fan. I, I use it, and sometimes I like to be very creative with it. And I certainly for a long time, like you, believe that I understood a new PowerPoint that is until I came across this YouTube channel. <laughs> there is a gentleman who calls himself OneScale, which I believe must be a play on the word for his name, who has a web a YouTube channel called OneScale PowerPoint. And oh my goodness, I feel the need to refresh my skills and update my skills <laughs> and bring new life really to my PowerPoint presentations because you and I will continue to do the work that we do. We'll continue to provide a learning experience, whether that is face-to-face -face and online. And you mentioned a moment ago, we should always keep learning new things. Well, one skill has got your back. He has obviously free content. You can also support him, support him on Patreon for his templates and tutorial. But I made some notes. So for example, would you like to know how to make some parallax effects for your slide transitions? Would you like to do some 3D effects, brush animation to reveal photography? Would you like to do some cinematic video introductions to your course? Would you like to be able to do some sliding sidebar menu? infographics, mirror morph effects with your content, float effects on graphics, and the list goes on 
and on and on and all this on PowerPoint, including obviously using some of the more hidden features and, and bells and whistles of, of the platform. So one skill originally from his biography is from Vilnius in Lithuania. And I can't remember whether you'd been there, Roger, as part of your travels as a speaker. Have you not been to Lithuania? I've not been yet? to Lithuania, no. Yeah. So I think he's now probably moved into the US, judging from the YouTube channel. But um, honestly, what skill? I can't thank you enough for being such an inspiration to all of us presenters. Uh, I wish you the very best. And for all of you, go on this channel. And if you think it's appropriate, do support him on Patreon because the, the, the advice is sharing is just incredible and will transform your enjoyment of using PowerPoints. So that's for you, Roger, but also bring new life to your to your presentation slides for your audience out there. Wow. I mean, it's interesting. I frequently go on YouTube looking for tips on how to use Adobe Premiere Pro and Photoshop and all of those things that I mentioned earlier in the show. It wouldn't have occurred to me to have done the uh, PowerPoint yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely not. So, yeah, I will check that out and find out and, and uh, certainly and see. Excellent. Roger Edwards, it is time for film marketing. It is. So, you know, Roger, the many movies we've chosen film marketing, they have a special place. and Almost like music, they take you to a time in your life that is important to an event that you can relate to. This film is officially the very first movie I saw at UK cinemas when I arrived in the UK 30 years ago. Wow. What is it? <laughs> what is it? What is that first film? Silence of the Lambs. Ah, 1991. Silence of the Lambs. I arrived in April 1991, the 13th of April 1991, to be precise. And a few months later, plucked up the courage to go to the movies with my broken English and sat there and listened intently to what was going on to be able to keep up, which probably made it even more scary for me, and introduced myself, you, and the world to probably one of the scariest um, villain of all times, Dr. Anibal Lecter. Yeah, now, again, I mean, it was huge at the time, wasn't it? And, and here we are again, a film that's 30 years old. <laughs> uh, but yes, absolutely remembered uh, how utterly scary Anthony Hopkins was and how incredible his performance was. And he, and he won an Oscar for it, didn't he? Um, which, is, which is good. And the thing is, as I remember at the time, a few years prior to Silence of the Lambs was actually another film called Manhunter. Uh, brilliant, yeah. Um, which was based upon a um, one of Thomas Harris's earlier Han Hannibal Lecter books. And it did have Hannibal Lecter in it, but it, he was played in that film by Brian Cox. So I was aware of Hannibal Lecter already, but the difference in the performance that Anthony Hopkins put in as Hannibal Lecter was just, it just, he almost leaped out of the screen, didn't he? Grabbed your brow the scruff of the neck and started to strangle you as he was acting. <laughs> it was that powerful. Um, so we, as is always the case when we do these film marketing se section, sessions, Pascal, is we watched Silence of the Lambs again last night. And we both came to the conclusion, my wife and I, that it's actually quite a lot longer than we thought since we've last watched it. Maybe it could be over 10 years. So first of all, we were absolutely 
amazed by how young Jodie Foster looked and even Anthony Hopkins for that matter I guess mm. uh, but again once again utterly compelling performances from both of them and uh, especially Anthony Hopkins scary as hell so you're absolutely right I remember I read uh, Red Dragon which is the mm-hmm. the first installment I've not read the books and so the lambs I did read afterwards Hannibal which I think is the trilogy mm-hmm. um but what a film and, and 91 just quickly on this Roger what a year for film goers I must have spent my entire year at the movies because what well, we mentioned a moment ago obviously there was Robin Hood but there was Terminator 2 which is actually was the number one high-grossing movie uh, after that. The Point Break, one of my all-time mm-hmm. favorite. Cape Fear, Thelma and Louise, you know, yes. Backdraft, The Rocketeer, my guilty pleasure. Oh my goodness. Double Impact with Van Damme, was Durant, Boys in a Hood, yeah. and the list goes yeah. on and on and on. Yeah. But I think that this is the movie that pretty much claimed the audience attention and critics alike for 1991. Absolutely right. It was it was so memorable. And again, do you know th- this might be a little bit controversial, but we watched it again last night, and the scenes between Jodie Foster and um, Anthony Hopkins, Clarice Starlin, she's the uh, um, FBI agent, and, and Hannibal Lecter, the, the psychopath, they're just so epically well acted, and so scary, and so compelling that actually I found the rest of the film, when he isn't in it, interacting with Clarice, I found that part of the film was actually, do you know, this could just be any old police procedure, but it was those scenes that stood out. And actually, I guess that maybe we've seen those scenes between Clarice and Lecter so many times in clips and on shows Mm. and, and, and on YouTube, that actually was a lot of the rest of the film which I'd forgotten about, and I couldn't even remember, uh, especially a lot of the scenes with them actually doing the investigative work. And I think it just really brought home to me how incredible the, those double scenes were with those two actors. But when you actually add up the amount of time that those two spend on screen together out of a two-hour movie, I mean, I, I haven't done the maths, but probably no more than 20 minutes, if that. Uh, but in, what an incredible 20 minutes that is and it almost eclipses the whole of the rest of the film for me Mm, i would agree and what is interesting is according to movie experts if there is such an occupation this is actually referred to as a horror movie Mm -hmm. which is interesting because to me it was a thriller but then when you start to watch it again as we did too last night roger this is lovely homework to do you realize this is truly horrible. I mean, this is obviously Hannibal Lecter and Buffalo Bill mm-hmm. played superbly by Ted Levine as well. I mean, mm-hmm. those actors, including Scott Glenn, they put their heart and soul into the performance. Mm-hmm. But also, let's compliment the music, Howard Shaw, which is just stunning, and the direction of Jonathan Dimmer, who has had an interesting kind of career starting at the Roger Corman, you know, kind of Academy of Filmmaking, but also did a lot of um, kind of movie around music, mm. concerts and documentaries and so on. And this was his breakthrough movie. A couple of years later, uh, it did Philadelphia as well. But the way which he brought the camera right into the face of Hannibal Lecter, at, uh, and there was no 
uh, you couldn't get away. You know, you, ha you had to act and be sincere. All those people to tell them the way in which they use a light. This is something that I miss. I must confess, from the nineties and two thousands, I don't think movies nowadays use light as much or lack of light, which mm. is um, often the case. And a moment ago, you mentioned it, but this won five Oscars: best picture, best director, best actor, best actress, and best adaptation of a screenplay. Uh, absolutely incredible and i was saying to denise you know what one day i'd love to watch this in black and white to see mm. how that works in terms of the tension but um really really a lovely film and it'd be lovely to or interesting to watch it with a younger audience as well to see how they deal with it but for me uh, i made some note to myself you know the opening sequence as well very cleverly done where you see the character of clarice and the first words that are uttered in a film uh, is this, her surname, Starling. Mm -hmm. And then there's this instruction to go into see her superior. There's no other words. And then there's um, her entering the room. We see the photography. On the, so within minutes, we kind of visually are told everything we need to know about the, this movie. So I've got some questions for you. Mm -hmm. Why do you think the character of Jack Crawford, played by Scott Glenn, sent Clarice, a trainee, to see Dr. Hannibal Lecter? Was it because he couldn't be bothered? Is it because he wanted to throw him off course almost? What, what do you think was the intention there? Very good question. I mean, <laughs> and, the, and there are so many answers. I mean, he could have just thought that Hannibal Lecter might have reacted better to a pretty girl or maybe he was scared to go himself you know that did that did occur to me that the you know the guy who's effectively running that department of the FBI had met his match if that was possible mm, and, and, and just and just didn't want to to face off to it maybe he just felt that it was the ultimate training for Clarice to be put in that position so I guess there are all sorts of different answers um and and i guess we'll never know what the actual yeah. answer was i wouldn't thank you if i was a trainee uh, <laughs> thanks boss you know i think i'll continue yeah. to go to the classroom i don't yeah. admit, admit, admit this cycle uh, but that's true and and in, what is interesting the whole film is about clarice in fairness mm. and i think it's been that's what's very very clever about this story there's been spin-offs, you could call them, Roger, yeah, the TV series and, and other films where it's all about Hannibal. And what I will say is that it's nowhere near as interesting because I think it is between, you know, Hannibal Lecter and Clarice. That's what, you know, is interesting to me. Yeah. And again, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I think we managed to watch two episodes of the series of Hannibal and didn't like it at all mm. i believe there is a series about clarice as well oh, and i think right. i think it, it is actually just called clarice and it's currently running so it's quite new uh, i think it's it's only been running for about 10 episodes i couldn't tell you where, where it is whether it's on netflix or amazon or wherever it is but i do know that it's got some good reviews so that might be worth checking out but i think that you're absolutely right Lecter works best when he's in the background and that's what I say he's not really on the screen for more than about 20 minutes the rest mm. of it is about Clarice and I think I remember the first film whether you watched Manhunter which was the original version or or Red Dragon which was the version that Anthony Hopkins did later again it was more about the relationship between mm. Will Graham and Lecter 
uh, as opposed to it all being about Hannibal. And again, he was in the background for most of that film too. And I think that's the way it should be. Absolutely, the absolutely. Be. The um, So when it all started, I've seen this film so many times, I used to own the VHS cassette, but I actually didn't, interestingly, didn't bother with the uh, upgrade to DVD and Blu-ray. Um, <laughs> probably because I've got everything in my head. So I was a bit concerned that I might just be nonplussed by the film, but actually it worked. The the descent into the cells to meet Dr. Hannibal Lecter the first time Mm. still still worked for me. And the reveal when he's standing there looking so incredibly scary. When he's trapped up, do you remember that scene? Well, of course you did last night. When he's trapped up, he's got a mask on and Mm. he's talking to the senator um, about um, her daughter yeah. when he escapes I mean that escape uh, so scary but then the character Buffalo Bill and what I call the is uh, metamorphosis to use the mm-hmm. uh, analogy with the, the butterfly the moth and can I just say this must have been the worst seller I've ever seen in, in a property <laughs> before so when Clarice goes down I mean it's like a maze isn't it <sighs> It's like a labyrinth, all the doors. <laughs> oh, God. And, uh, you know, it echoes an earlier scene where she's practicing, uh, you know, That's going right, yeah. into a building and she gets she gets picked up by one of the instructors for not doing the right pattern or something. And he says, That's why you just got shot. And then when she's actually in the cellar, she's having to do it properly because her life is absolutely at yeah. risk. But yeah, where you think, Where is he going to jump out from? He's going to mm. jump out any moment. The, la- the whole last act is so, so tense. So mm-hmm. this movie is giving us some some visuals that have been imprinted into our mind. I will never look at the uh, death head moth uh, the same way again. <laughs> but also it's giving us some uh, pretty scary strap lines that people have been repeating now for three decades. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the fava beans. I, mean, I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. <laughs> you know, that's terribly scary and, and even his last throwaway line oh, you know, I'm wow. having an old friend for dinner <laughs> oh wow That's I remember a, 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 chuckling <laughs> in the movies but it was that nervous chuckle thinking because you kind of know that he's going to you know, obviously go ahead with um, his, his promise I had a friend that uh, whose party trick was he could imitate Buffalo Bill and say it puts the lotion on its skin or else <laughs> it gets to hose again and um, I mean not something that no one should be proud of but he was very good at it and uh, he used to amuse us no end at the pub at the time yeah so it's a 30 year old film so what do we what do we know about the marketing apart from the fact the poster was pretty iconic yeah i want to talk about the poster in a moment because i think it's at the heart of its marketing campaign but to begin with let's talk about the the release in the US, this was released on Valentine's Day, 1991. <laughs> uh, why wouldn't you? Um, this is a lovely <laughs> you know, date movie. But the reason for that, and I think there's two or three good decisions that the uh, producers and Orion at the time took, and one is around timing. And the first one about timing, this in the, in the US was officially a four-day weekend. So from a pure commercial point of view, Roger, they had two extra days of earnings which meant that, of course, they got the PR machine kicking in, saying, wow, this is the highest grossing movie ever, and it's bloody scary. And then the printing media, TV and radio took over. Yes, yes. I, 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 again, it, it's, it reminds me that in those days, films opened in the States quite a lot earlier than they mm. did 
around the rest of the world and that allowed some of the clips to be shown on news channels to be shown on programs like screen test or whatever it might be to build up the anticipation for when it was going to be released in the uk that never really happens anymore mainly films mm. get released within days of each other because we know that give it more than a couple of hours and everything will be all over the internet anyway so i mean interestingly we are almost um, to the day um, thirty celebrating thirty years of Silence yeah. of the Lambs because this was June nineteen ninety one. The premiere mm -hmm. at the Audion Lights Square, which is usually where it happens, and by yeah. that time people knew just a bit more about the movie. And then using what you mentioned a moment ago, the poster mm -hmm. was really quite enigmatic. But this is interesting for us to look back at the poster thirty years later because. When you go to, you know, kind of uh, wait outside, waiting for your turn to enter the screening room and you see this poster, it really is a strange one because unless you've seen the film or perhaps read the book, the elements on the, in the poster really give you quite intrigued, wouldn't you say? Because you don't know about the moth, you don't know necessarily about the victim being kind of uh, having their skin removed. So mm -hmm. this poster is almost a payoff after the film, not before. Yeah, I never thought of it like that again. It's a very enigmatic post. I mean, the moth itself is so striking. Mm. Um, and the fact that it's uh, they've, they've done a little bit of visual trickery with the moth because I have seen a death's, a death's head moth before and, and the skull isn't quite as intricately drawn as that on the actual, on the actual moth itself. But again, the, 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 the silhouette of the, of the woman, who I assume is Clarice, has actually got red eyes, which I, have, I always thought was quite scary. Well, for years, I thought it was one of the victims. So, mm. And that's opened the debate. Is it Clarence? Is it one of the victims? Mm. Um, if people want to, you go online and find the poster, the original one, because unfortunately, then they messed with it for the recent iterations of the Blu-ray. Mm. Um, they, they've added Anibal Lecter and so on. But if you zoom right into the moth, you will see that the skull is shaped by the naked body of women, inspired ah. by a um, artwork from uh, Dali. You will see, if you zoom in, seven women. Right. And again, where the poster pays off is, if you've seen the film, you know that there's been five victims. Mm -hmm. Then there is Catherine, the senator's daughter in the well. Mm -hmm. And then you've got Clarice, which make seven. Gosh, I never knew that. That's, mm. in, that's incredible. And I'm even looking at the movie poster on my screen at the moment and i can't get close enough to it to see that but it does look like a skull to me but now i, I look even closer i can see the detail that <laughs> that you're talking about there it's because uh, ultimately um buffalo bill could have killed her and Catherine yeah. would have made seven so I like this and this idea of a poster being more than just the teaser. It's actually mm -hmm. a reward for seeing the film where you are in, you've got a bit of complicity with mm -hmm. the filmmakers. And that's the first time that I've seen something done in that way. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think that has been at the heart of, of the campaign. But also this juxtaposition, because you've got the poster, then you've got a great trailer. Even 30 years later, uh, if you watch it, it does stack up. But mm -hmm. then there's no uh, reference to the moths in the trailer. There's even yeah. no reference. And, and it's really quite interesting what they're trying to do here, where they're trying to uh, appeal to different audiences or literally give us something almost like a red herring, which has been at the heart of the way Anibal Lecter kind of plays, like a cat would play with a mouse with Clarice. 
yeah, I think I think that there is an element of the producers playing with us in the same way as <laughs> as Lecter plays with his victims and gets into the heads of the people he interacts with. Back to playing, and I think what wouldn't you be playful? And maybe that's one of the marketing lessons: a do something extra with your visuals, yes, but also uh, absolutely again with the mindset of you and I being video producers and live streamers, but also learning the language of cinema. When you watch the trailer 30 years later, and the first words you hear are, do you spook easily, Starling? And Clarice replies, not yes, not sir. Yet. <laughs> you actually now understand they were asking the audience, do you spook easily? Yes, yes. Not yet. I said, well, what, spent two hours in the company watch. of Anibal Lecter, and you might. Yeah, no, it's very, very clever. <laughs> and, and sometimes, Trailers these days aren't as subtle as that. They just give you effectively a precy of what's happening in the entire film. But that was genuinely, those words were selected to so, talk directly at the audience. Yeah, and to your point, this was made 30 years ago, so the marketing campaign won't be multifaceted and as complex as a movie done today. But they did two things really well. They got the timing right in terms of the release. Yeah, They got a poster that was a talking point and they got the trailer that really, really set the tone of the intrigue superbly well. You can watch it again. And then, of course, they piggybacked and, and fueled the PR machine. But um, being a complete movie nerd, of course, I did a bit more research about the, the timing. And what was interesting is that this movie originally was scheduled for late 1990 because they were hoping to kind of sync it with festivals and the likes. Mm -hmm. But actually, they realized that if they did so, this movie would be overshadowed by Dances with Wolves, right. which is also a co-production with Orion, which, by the way, won the Oscar as well. So they waited a bit longer because they thought, hmm, we've got the chance there to win not just this year, but next year's Oscar with this movie. So let's delay the release by four or five months, which must have felt very brave at the time, maybe a bit frustrating for the actors as well. But timing, Roger, once again. Absolutely. It's always about timing. <laughs> so if you have not seen Thanos of the Lambs for a while, I think you can take it from Roger and I, go back and watch it, and then immerse yourself a little into the marketing. Look at the poster again, look at the trailer, and ask yourself the question, which is really at the heart of this segment, are there any lessons that I can take into my business, into my creative endeavors, and more? Roger Edwards, this has been episode 45. Thank you so much for being such a wonderful co-host and for your many insights and conversations. For you out there, please leave comments and suggestions in the usual places. And to the next one, go out there and make sure your marketing is done right. I was Pascal Pintoni and he was Roger Edwards. Mm -hmm.